0: Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Kathleen Dollars here. She's waiting in the wings, and uh, we're ready to roll. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you're ready, are you ready? I'm always ready, man. I'm excited. All right. Well, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude. What do you got? This one came to me from Mr. Steve Strong in the Apple Next World. Yeah, and this is uh, JSON to TypeScript. Really? So think of, yeah, think of it like Newtonsoft, but for TypeScript objects instead of regular JavaScript. Okay. So it's a small package containing a helper class that maps JSON objects to an instance of a TypeScript class. Okay. After compiling to JavaScript, the result will still be an instance of this class. And one big advantage is you can use the methods of the class. You, you know, it uses the TypeScript metadata and attributes to to do the mapping. So it's a good idea, and it's simple, easy. and you Makes can things just, a little uh, easier, yeah. Yeah, it makes things a little easier, JSON to TypeScript.
1: Just a helper. Just a helper. We can always yep. use a little help. Yep, that's right. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard. Grabbed a comment off of show 1433. So that's, you know, roughly a little over a year ago. We talked to Kathleen about C Sharp and Studio 2017, which had just shipped at that point. And, and, you know, and, you know, it was a long show. Kathleen could talk. Yeah. There was a lot to talk about, you know. It was great times for C Sharp and it had been an exciting year. And we got a ton of comments on that show. People reacted very strongly. And I don't know if you recall, because admittedly it was, you know, a hundred something shows ago, but we definitely, we dove deep into Async 08 and sort of challenges around that. Oh, I do remember. It's one of my favorite shows. And Thomas Subiek. Has this great comment. He said, when Kathleen mentioned that she wanted to hear about people's experiences with Async, I knew I needed to share the following story. Okay. Async await in an MVC app was a lifesaver in a mid-sized e-commerce site I used to work on as a web developer this last Black Friday. Hmm. So e-commerce D-Day, Black Friday, right? Like this is the hardest job you have. You Mm. must survive. Mm Mm-hmm. For several years, big promotional events were always a source of tension on my team. Promo pages that displayed all the deals the company was offering would cause all sorts of issues. The teams that created the pages were always having to fight fires. The pages worked by calling a sale item data retrieval service over HTTP sequentially. Hmm. Last Black Friday, we had more than 100 calls to the service page per promo page. Wow. This service was typically pretty quick, but 10 millisecond response times add up quickly. So the team ended up putting the page behind an output cache, which led to more problems. It was quick, but the pages would be different with each page load because the customers would be hitting different servers with each request. And every 15 minutes, some poor customer would have to wait more than a second for a page for each server in the farm. Hmm. Needless to say, this was not a great system. Yeah. Yeah. So, last year, a colleague and I decided to try and fix the problem by making all the calls async, then aggregate them afterwards with the task dot when all. Okay. We used Siege to simulate loads on the farm, and we found the new async methods were slower on average, about 100 milliseconds, than the synchronous calls behind the output cache, which was one millisecond. Hmm. However, the standard deviation and maximum time to get a response was dramatically better with the async code using async code meant that no customer had a terrible experience and we didn't have to deal with output caches. Right. And this is a great insight that certainly I've talked about doing sessions about performance tuning, which is that individual page response is not the most important thing. Right. That consistency under load is the more important thing. And I think that's what Thomas discovered was, yeah, my individual page load was not the fastest version, but it didn't matter how many requests we threw at it. It was the same. Yeah. And he finishes up by saying we ended up using the async code and Black Friday was a breeze. Good. It was the first promotion I was a part of, but the people on the team that had slogged through the past few years with promotions were amazed that we didn't get any phone calls and still had record sales days. That's all you want. Yeah. Can't get better yeah. than that. Yeah, we're making selling a ton and people aren't freaking out. What a concept. Yeah, what a <laughs> That's a good week. <laughs> Uh, that's the bar, you know, on those kinds of days. It's yeah. like, is nobody killing me? Okay. It's a good day. <laughs> Phone doesn't ring. Awesome. But like I said, a great education on, you know, what, what scale actually looks like is that consistency and reliability and yeah. getting asynchronous does a good job of that. Even if it costs a few cycles here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for your comment. Got us to laugh and, uh, reminded me of the good old days and making stuff work. And uh, a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and read it on the show, we'll send you some Music to Code by.
0: Absolutely. And uh, definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Uh, send us a tweet. We await them
1: with bated breath. <laughs> and never ever called task went all no so <laughs> no because there's never at all
0: <laughs> all right let's uh let's bring kathleen back on the show kathleen dollard her bio has changed since the last time we talked to her. she loves to code and loves to teach and loves to talk about code she's written tons of articles a book and spoken at numerous conferences around the world She's on the .NET team at Microsoft, where she works on VB, C Sharp, and the .NET Core, CLI, and SDK. If you're not sure what all those things mean, just ask her. She's always ready to help developers take the next step in exploring the wonderful world we call code. Welcome back, Kathleen. Hey, how are you doing? Doing great. One of our very first guests. I mean, you were there at the beginning of .NET
1: Rock's history.
2: Absolutely. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a while. Yeah.
1: I got to count up the shows now. Yeah, 16 <laughs> shows. Oh, wow. really?
2: Oh, my yeah. gosh. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's it's been quite a ride. It's been a lot of change. My goodness. And uh, I like the changes that we've all seen in our own lives and in the, uh, in the technology we use. And mm. oh, my gosh, you know, that's... I mean, I'm just <laughs> thinking about like... I, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about it like my, with my kids, you know, and right. they were like... My my older son it was like a t, you know he was like fifteen and we first did a show
1: yeah that's right twenty
2: eleven and he's done a show with me and then uh, now he's uh, kicking butt at Google uh, in algorithms, in Waterloo right yeah he did. yes that's the one we did is algorithms yeah and mm-hmm. he's uh, I don't know what he's doing but I will tell you this real quick is that. Uh, you know, when they were growing up, when my kids are growing up, they kind of hassled me for being in the Microsoft space because they thought open source was like the greatest thing ever, mm, right? Mm. So now they're grown up. And I talked to my older son and I said, hey, you know, I'm working on open source for Microsoft. Right. And uh, what are you doing these days? And he mm. goes, I can't tell you, mom. <laughs> so, uh,
0: <laughs> I don't know what he does. All I know is I get no <laughs> spam in my Gmail inbox.
1: <laughs> but he's now on a closed source project at Google and can't talk about it. That's pretty funny.
2: Although, in fairness, I want to say that they're apparently part of what they're doing, they're hoping that they'll be able to take open source. But, yeah, no, I don't know what he actually does. So, that's, uh, it, that's pretty funny. Very cool. So, yeah. But it's interesting that we're
1: now in this place where we even look at, you're going to take it open source? Like, if it's an open source project, it should be open source from the outset. It's very interesting that... You know, M- Microsoft's clearly made the switch now, where they they're simply starting projects in GitHub. It's you know visible the whole way.
2: That's true. Um, I I do think that there's a space for projects uh, that that sort of have a design phase and a and a definition phase, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is not so open uh, because the 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 definition of something can can require a very high level uh, of expertise and and actually I'll, I'll spill the beans and say that we're we're working on one right now as a side project with some folks that are absolute experts at command line parsing uh, they they're just absolutely brilliant on on that within the net space hmm. and we're working at setting up a, a command line parser as a open source project but it's first design phase where you know we're doing some pretty radical re rethink- on a regular basis, we're just, we're just not quite doing that public. This is just a side project for some of us, but we, we're looking forward to that being, uh, being public super soon and hmm. hopefully moving towards um, incorporation.
1: And, and maybe what I'm saying here is not necessarily fair because most open source projects start with a person building some experiments for themselves that they eventually publish into right. a, an open source repository for folks to take a look at and, and be part of.
0: Hey, Kathleen, I might but, be able to yeah. use that command line parser on a project we're doing in AppVNex right now. That's sort of great. like one I,
2: of our... I, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, yeah. we're, the the goal of it is to be super simple for the super simple case um, and then also be able to be as complex as we need to be because uh, the CL, .NET CLI is one of the more complicated... Uh, command line parsing problems that are is out there, yeah. and it, it has to fit that for it to make sense for us to be doing it. But it's the expertise we gained on that that we want to to take. What's in the CLI, which is open source, but it just it's not right. You can be open source and not be right. For, for people to use. It's too hard to use. Yeah. Uh, the, the ideas are a little bit convoluted. And so sometimes you have to take that out and rethink it and put it into a context that makes sense for people. But for parsing, you know, we, we want to separate out the model of how you define what you're parsing from the actual parse information and separate that out from the ways we use our parse definition, which includes help, man pages, tab completion and then the actual parsing of something so anyway we're working on that and uh, i hadn't really planned on talking about that no that's Hopefully, all right that-
0: well i'm sure you have, you're i'm sure you're working on plenty of cool things that you really can't wait to start talking about so we'll just open the floor
2: yeah what so, are you doing uh, these days well i'm i'm all over the map right now a little bit uh it's all within the net team um and all within uh the 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 tooling space. Uh, so the CLI now uh, works alongside Visual Studio uh, a little bit more closely than we used to. They're both the the, the gateway into the, the .NET ecosystem and, and doing .NET applications. And in one case, we're using the uh, command line and we're using tools like VS Code and other editors. And in the other case, we're using Visual Studio, but they're both going into the same processes, the same build and the same, you know restore and all of the same things behind the scene so we're just working a little bit more closely together and that's been great especially as we start planning for dotnet uh, core 3 and what that's going to mean in detail to yeah. uh, expand the whole meaning of of what dotnet uh, is which is pretty exciting yeah. the, this whole notion of a of dotnet remaining the great cross platform dotnet uh, core i'm sorry remaining the base, cross-platform, fantastic thing it is right now, but preparing it to have very big things sitting on top of it. So the WinForms and WPF work for .NET Core 3, and, and it's a little misnamed because it's .NET Core 3, and we are gonna see a big change to the .NET Core space, but publicly what we've talked about is this layer that sits on top of it to do WinForms and WPF and that WinForms and WPF will just be on windows. So this change to make the, the, the foundation, which is great right now, uh, better able to accommodate these big things sitting on top of it. That is super exciting in that space right now.
1: Of the big game here in my mind is being able to take an old.net app, you know, a, a 2010 app that at, and move it to core with uh, the WinForms of WPF mm. SDKs on top of it. I'm, i just, I, I, of course, we're predicting the future because this hasn't been built yet. But I gotta presume like one of the goals is that you could lift and shift an app like that.
2: That's the that's the goal. And in what I I don't know where we're gonna land on is what apps you're gonna be able to lift and shift. So right. the idea is almost everything. But then we get into spaces that that just man, just don't make sense to take forward. I mean, we've had several XSLT uh, mechanisms over the years, and XML has been handled in different ways. Those are basics. And then we go on to things like workflow and other things that have been tacked on the side. So the the scope of what of that is going to be able to just lift and shift, I think, is still a bit of a question. Um, but there is a commitment to move in general, just to be able to move your app. And that doesn't include just C Sharp apps. That's Visual Basic apps as well. And so the idea that we can get onto an, a new platform with fundamentally different deployment characteristics, it runs side by side. And and we believe that that is a, a, it's a technical detail for our customers, mm. but it's an absolutely critical one. Because by looking at running side by side with the platform so you can have let's say in the future we have a .net core 3 and a .net core 3.1 which we would absolutely expect to have as our runtimes those can run on the same machine and right. so you can't do that with a full framework, and it means that there's a certain element of risk every time you move forward. But if you don't move forward, there's an element of risk in terms of you know your your security story and your ability to keep your people up to date and everything else. So so right now you're kind of this moving forward is a bit of a scary thing and it requires a little bit of investment. Well, in the .NET Core three world, you'll be able to run one app on .NET core three and on the same machine right next to it run .NET core three one and we're working of course on on good stories on being able to call back and forth between things like mm. that and all that you would expect right. for making that ecosystem really work and i think it's super important uh for going into the future
0: you mentioned vb how is mr vb doing these days
2: really great. I'm the I'm the VBPM, and so uh, yeah. it's VB.net. Okay, let me say VB.net because VB six is that's well,
0: the only VB we know now, right? When we say VB, w- it's well, of course, that's it's VB.net. true. But
2: but there are some people that are that are still in, involved in uh, some paid support long term. Yeah, Microsoft keeps things going absolutely f- forever if our customers need it, and so the the VB six story is 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 a quite different story. But VB .net is still very much alive, and it has it is moving. It is not having a lot of changes to it, and that is something that we're we're working hard to understand and communicate about. But for the things Visual Basic does, it does it really well right now. Sure. And so, where do we want to change the surface area? Uh, is one of our you know we have hundreds of thousands of people every month using VB. This is not a small number of people. Right. But but they're not people that I talk to very much not this broader group of them so some you had somebody who um, made comments because i said i want to talk to people that do async stuff i definitely want to talk to people that are doing visual basic kind of in the trenches work to better understand what they need but we don't particularly think that they want a bigger surface area that they want a lot of new features
0: yeah they kind of want stability right
2: Stability is, is like it's not – it's it's a really important thing, and we don't talk about it enough in the industry. I, I talk about legacy code on stage, and, and I, I do work around this area of we spend most of our time and almost all of the time of any line of code exists in a state – of, of what I'm going to call legacy, but it's a stable state. The reason I don't like the word legacy is that we associate a lot of things with it. And right. all I mean by stable code is it's been checked in. So as soon as something works, you start approaching it from a point of view of change instead of a point of view of creation. Right. And as soon as you've done that, it's a fundamentally different exercise. And anything that alters the context that code runs in other than your code changes, is bad, really bad.
0: That's right. So if I write
2: a line of code, I want it to do the same thing forever, no matter what. And nothing in the world should change that. That's what stability means. Especially if
0: this is so important to our bottom line. I mean, so many apps are written in VB that make money, you know, and they're just out there running and they should be running and they're working great. And then all of a sudden (laughs) something comes along and, Oh, the you know we have a mandate to upgrade or update our version of .NET, and oh no, something broke. Now we well, don't want we,
2: that. We, obviously, we work very hard for that. Yeah, not that doesn't to happen. happen.
0: That doesn't happen. But,
2: but it 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 can, and and when it you know when we change something in the framework and it causes people trouble, of course we feel terrible about it. But it when it's delivered to so many different machines, this is a you know this this is a challenge. And so when Visual Basic even if we don't make a lot of changes to it, moves to .NET Core 3, those people that can make that move are going to be able to move their WinForms and WPF and their um, some of maybe some of their web API with some changes and move things mm. uh, to that. Then they can run side by side and keep that code running into the future because the I think our responsibility as an industry is to this massive amount of already written code. Obviously, new code is important, but we spend a disproportional amount of our time on this new code as opposed to this large amount of, of existing code. And for, for Visual Basic in particular, um, I I think and, and I definitely am working to better understand this hypothesis that that stability and, and predictability are more important than new features. And so that's that's the the frame in which I'm thinking right now about Visual Basic, I love Visual Basic. I've done it forever. Yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm not. I'm, we're working we're working with that right now and trying to best understand what the future of Visual Basic looks like as a premier language. We're we're absolutely changing it all the time to make Visual Studio work better with it. Yeah. We add analyzers. We just made a huge effort on analyzers to make it the default that they'll work on Visual Basic and C Sharp. Uh, we've got work going on in terms of support for changes to the framework with local and things happen in C Sharp. Changes mm. happen to VB to absorb that. So for VB being fully part of the ecosystem, that work's going on all the time. And we do small things. We just did an a optimization in uh, 15. Eight, the one that's that's we're just uh, finishing up right now. Yeah, um, it's got an optimization for graphics. There's a particular pattern that for Visual Basic, because it rounds instead of truncates when it goes from a floating point to an integer, uh, that's a much slower operation, and that yeah. results in challenges in certain. Uh, modeling and graphic scenarios. Well,
0: so now- I tell you, I think I speak for everybody when I say uh, we feel a lot better knowing that you're in charge of VB. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, thank you very much. Now, because you, you care about much. the language, you have a history with it and uh, it, it's really a wonderful thing, but hold that thought for just a minute while we take this moment to hear a very important message. Hey, Carl Franklin here. Did you know that my music to code by collection is now an app that you can get in your app store? Yeah, it's called Music to Flow By, and you get the first three for free, and then if you subscribe, you can get all the other tracks. I know you've gotten a lot of utility out of Music to Code By, but it's not just for coders. So tell a friend, get Music to Flow By, and start flowing. All right. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. Our good friend Kathleen Dollard is here. We were just talking about VB, the VB ecosystem. But there's a a lot more on your plate than just Visual Basic these days, isn't there?
2: There is. Uh, I'm working with uh, the CLI and SDK. And and the great thing about my job, just I want to clarify this, because it sounds like I actually do work, and and I actually kind (laughs) of don't do work. Nice. (laughs) It takes a
0: big person to say that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of my job not to do work. Uh, So um, my job is to to work with and, uh, you know, Guide, inspire. You know, it. It. I won't say direct because people are very self-directional, and, and it's. It's. My job is to help. My job is to empower other people, and that's. It's a fantastic job to have. Mm. Um. But it, it. means that even on the the CLI command stuff I mentioned, I haven't written that code. Other people have been working on the code. But for the CLI SDK, I was part of an effort by a lot of people to put together look global tools, which came out in uh, .NET core uh, 2.1, um, and the that is a way we can expand, everyone can expand the .NET Core ecosystem, the CLI ecosystem, and we're, uh, I'm working on some some guidance and some more documentation around this, but if you have something that you want to run uh, as part of the, the ecosystem or even not, so let's just say that you want a way to uh, do a particular uh check of against get that it's not doing in a way you want you can write the tool to do that and then you can install it with global tools and it will run on that machine as though it was it just as like any other application but to get it on the machine you just have to say dot net tool install dash G blah this is parallel to the NPM G right. it's very similar to that so we've got that feature now and I'm very excited about it and again I Look forward to the further growth of our tooling ecosystem. So uh, yeah. that's that's a very exciting thing I'm doing,
1: and, and that's latest bits, right? That's two point one. We really we we got that right after build, I think.
2: It is. It's the it's the brand new builds builds. It's the brand new bits, and that's also uh, where we're. I think we've arrived at our. Uh, versioning number system. So uh, versioning, unfortunately, version numbers is kind of in my lap for the CLI SDK and and .NET Core. And I think we've arrived now. So I think that people can count on this uh, 2.1 will match. The first two numbers will match between the runtime and the SDK. And then the rest of it, you generally don't have to worry about but the SDK can continue to roll forward in minor versions faster than the runtime with the dot hundreds. It's right now dot three hundred for historic reasons. But mm. uh, but that that's good to get out the door and be done with.
0: That's awesome. So um, what is what was your what was your first day on the job like?
2: Scary and also it it took me months not to just be amazed that my card actually worked on the door <laughs> that I <can't laughs> that they actually let me do this. You know, uh, it's such an amazing. It was just an absolutely amazing experience uh, for me, and so uh, I was just like, "Wow, they're just like letting me do this." And yeah. then I've, as I moved into languages, because I started strictly with the CLI and SDK, which was totally new to me. I mean, I think I talked to you once about spending uh, some time on a Mac, and I had done that in a previous uh, a previous position. Mm. And then my first six months, I was on a Mac again and trying to get the, you know, the the microsoft stuff to work and before i was a director of engineering and when something went wrong i handed my laptop to somebody and they fixed it and now i've got to worry about all this so it was quite an it was quite an experience but now i'm back on both uh both sides of the equation uh, as i work more with languages and c sharp as well i'm working on both c sharp and visual basic um, a little bit more leadership on the visual basic side
0: so what's the coolest thing you discovered about the cli
2: Honestly that it existed. I mean I knew it existed. I that sounds terrible. <laughs> but That's funny. It is funny because I I think it was part of the strength I brought to the job is that I wasn't a a big CLI user before I started on working on it as my job. Yeah. It sounds like like a really interesting decision that people made, but I did bring really fresh eyes to it, Sure. and so it w- it was amazing to better understand how it worked. Uh, that was that was great. It's been amazing that we're uh, we're as solid as we are on our the semantics and syntax of it when we didn't really write that down. And that's one of the things I'm working on is a white paper on how CLIs actually work and how to design them um, in, in the the way that we think about them in terms of design, it's a it's in process right now. Uh, and we think that that might help other people because I evaluated uh, a lot of CLIs that work. None of them follow rules with consistency. I think there is a level yeah. of art in creating a CLI. But they actually do all follow a particular pattern, all the ones that we don't hate, uh, follow a particular pattern. And I want to get that kind of out there so people can... Uh, understand it, embrace it, and as they're writing any even minor uh, CLI-type stuff, so anytime you have command line, that's all I mean by CLI, uh, that that's going to be kind of consistent within the ecosystem of .NET. So I'm specifically talking about people writing global tools. So if someone writes a global tool, if they follow the same patterns that we've used inside of the CLI, then the whole ecosystem experience is going to stay consistent and beautiful, and, and obviously that's what we want
0: absolutely do you use it
2: yourself now oh yeah now i do all the time yeah so i did even from the beginning i mean as soon as i got my mac what else was i going to do sure, but being yeah, visual yeah. studio code and in doing uh that i'm, I'm not a, a big you know i use parallels when i have to but mm-hmm. it's it it pains me so yeah. uh i mostly use my personal laptop when i want to be in visual studio and by the way i love visual studio code he does some fantastic things but at the end of the day i I also really love the power we have in Visual Studio. So sure. if I'm on a Windows machine, I I I have a tendency to drop back into Visual Studio. So I, I can say that because I'm not the Visual Studio code PM, just the CLI PM. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I I uh, I use both though. Even when I'm in Visual Studio, I'll often drop to the command line to to get stuff done really fast. Right. So you know I bounce around a little bit.
1: That's good. Hey Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now. Uh, It must be that happy time again.
0: Yeah, it's time to public function, get funny as string, return underscore joke dot gratuitous VB joke, end function.
1: (laughs) 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 I'm pretty sure that returned a void,
0: but okay. (laughs) That's right. It returns nothing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I think you started with function, then. It should have been a sub.
0: (laughs) Yeah, clearly. (laughs) If you knew it was going to return nothing, (laughs) why is it a function? (laughs) Uh, Because
1: you're an optimist. That's why. (laughs) You know, when
0: I started this show, what is it, 16 years ago or so, I I promised I would never read code on the air. And there have been a few times, and that's one of them. So, sorry. Sorry. It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Toolkit to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first package set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of the company's Telerik, ASP.NET, AJAX, ASP.NET, MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. Basically, everything. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, Developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more information, visit tellericcom slash conversational UI. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Michael Richardson. Oh, congratulations, Michael. Yeah. A little clappers for you. The clappers are for you, Michael. And uh, Michael just won the Telerik DevCraft Toolkit. That's their big collection just for being a member of the .NET Rocks Fan Club. And if you don't know what that is, or if you want to sign up, go to click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win and Kathleen now it's your turn if you had five thousand dollars to spend on technology today what would you buy
2: so I don't think you're gonna like my answer but <laughs> honestly I'd put it in the bank and I'll tell you why <laughs>
0: it's
2: because what I want isn't available just yet ah. but I think it might be in the next two years it's Almost available. So first of all, I live a kind of minimalist lifestyle. I'm really enjoying that. My kids are gone. I live in a small apartment. I love all that. So I don't need much stuff, okay? So yeah. so all of that is is good. But what I do want is, is I'm still in search of the right car for me, okay? okay? So this has kind of been an ongoing kind of a thing. I got rid of my big truck, heartbroken on that. But what I want is a plug-in hybrid SUV. I'm not quite ready to go the full plug-in route. Um, I still like to be able to just head off and be able to go in the woods and tell, you know for a long way and all that. Yeah. But every day I don't drive very much. And so I really want a plug-in, a plug-in hybrid, similar to the new plug-in Prius Prime, except I really want an, an SUV. So I want a mm. four-wheel drive plug-in hybrid. And there is a four-wheel drive hybrid in the RAV4 and some other people have been working in that space as well. Um so it's kind of like the the Chrysler Pacifica, except I'm not quite sure minivan is my style. I, I uh. haven't quite gone there yet. So uh, that's what. I, so I really am hoping that in the next year or two we're going to see a plug-in hybrid, uh, either the Rav4 or from somebody else.
0: You know, the first time you have a minivan, it's because you have kids. The second time you have a minivan is because you have grandkids. So I you don't know. have
2: grandkids <laughs> yet. I know so that's what I'm
0: saying. So you may want to yeah. put that off for a little while.
2: <laughs> so yeah, so but the Rav Four, if 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 Toyota comes out with a plug-in hybrid Rav Four, you know I'm going to be like signing up to get that. That that's the car that I want. And after you know very long time, you know now I get get laptops, which is what I always wanted. Yeah. So now I'm hoping eventually I'm going to get the car, which is what I what I really want. That's cool. And so uh, I, I hate to not go spend the money right now, but there's kind of not anything out there right now that I'm dying to spend money on. So I'm going to kind of punt that one and say I'm waiting for the thing i want to buy well that's cool that's
1: because really toyota mean cool. made the prius for sure for a long time it was just a hybrid in fact there were homemade plug-in versions long before right. they finally made one
2: right and they tried the first time and they kind of got blasted out by the epa by saying that they weren't actually going very far at all on their right. plug-in so they kind of step back, re-engineered it, and they've re- they've released it again now. And the numbers they're claiming are 25 miles, which is plenty for me. Uh, yeah. There are an mm. awful lot of days I don't drive further than 25 miles, but on that day that I do, I might not only be driving a long way, I might be driving a long way for part of that is like, you know. On back roads in you know places where I don't exactly know how long it's going to be till I come out and trying to plan against a plug-in station for that I'm just not ready to do it and the off-road stuff I don't want to be in a rental vehicle so I'm just kind of like okay I'm going to stick with my I have a 2012 Hyundai uh, Veloster and I'm going to keep my little Veloster for a little while longer and hope that I can uh, get the car I want. So So, you know if you really
0: want to go nuts you can get a diesel hybrid. And use veggie oil. <laughs> Put some solar panels on the roof to, to run the radio.
1: And now you're just like freewheeling.
2: All right. I keep that in mind, Carol. <laughs> nice. Yeah, sure. well, they, you know, the Model
1: 3s are finally coming out and somebody's disassembled a, a damaged one. Of course, one got into an accident. So we're finally getting some data on the battery pack. Like that's, I think what Toyota's always struggled with, with those, with the plug-in hybrids, was their batteries just weren't good enough. And now that we're yeah. starting to see, you know, the true leading edge of battery is coming from Panasonic slash Tesla. And they're that battery pack's only two hundred pounds. Hmm. Like yeah. it's yeah. it is it is literally science fiction compared to a lot of other battery work that's going on. I told you my story about the the Prius, right? Um,
0: you know, the batteries are warranted for 10 years. Well, mine broke at
1: like a month before the warranty ran out. Wow. And they replaced the whole thing. It's good. Yeah, it's very that good. awesome. And Lucked out. As this battery technology starts to spread around, this 35-mile range stuff, like so forth, like it's just going to go away. You may still have a motor because you want that safety. You're going right. to do the, the, the hybrid thing to be able mm. to charge the battery pack. The battery pack's going to have 150 miles on oh, it. Oh,
2: I think it's going to be awesome. The one thing that, that I, I look at, though, is that, so the Prius has approved out those batteries, I think, in a variety of weather conditions. And the new Tesla battery, that's still an air-conditioned battery, isn't it?
1: It's still a cooled battery, yeah. but that's inevitable. All
2: right. right. So, yeah, that's yeah. an interesting trade-off there that we make, and certainly going to two hundred pounds for a battery is just absolute mind-boggling. That's like you know, that's like you're like an oversized friend in the back seat. You know, that's like not anything.
1: Exactly. That's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah, right.
2: nothing. And so, it's abs. That's a, a, an amazing uh, accomplishment, and hopefully, we're going to see that across a range of, of vehicles. I'm really excited about where we're going with our next range of vehicles. I, I've said before that I think that the last. Uh, 15 years-ish, you know, uh, has been like, maybe 20 years has been like the most boring time in automobile technology. Um, there's been like very little exciting happening. But now I think starting a few years ago and going forward, we have lots of exciting things, including um, the safety stuff and the, the power stuff, which reminds me of one yeah. other thing they really need to work harder on. I drove a Mazda 3. Okay. And it's not the right car for me to buy, but it was a rental car. And it was absolutely adorable in its safety features. <laughs> so,
1: it was so cute. It was so
2: cute. Now I have to tell Wait, you why it cute was cute. Safety features. The safety features. They were adorable. Okay. <laughs> so, one of the safety features that I, I was driving in terrible conditions. Okay. And it was just rock solid. I love this little Mazda 3 in these conditions. But, so one of the things it did is it had a lane change thing. And if I put my blinker on, and it thought it wasn't safe, it had this almost little, it's like I just—it just sounded like a little robot saying, "Don't hurt me, don't hurt me," because the beep was like this little, <laughs> "Don't hurt me, don't hurt me." <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what the cars need to do because I, you may have been in some of the stuff where the lane change assist is it's just like, rent, "Rent, rent, and I'm like, "It's not really what I want," you know? I no. did just say, "Please, please, don't hurt me, don't hurt me." So incoming. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was great. I hope that we do get a little bit more humanity in the the safety features because uh, I do, I think it's great. I think lane change is great. I I will admit that about once every year or two somebody has to honk at me because I'm coming over on them, and I'm like that should never happen. It should just never. Ever I want some happen. more
0: humanity in Visual Studio messages too. You know. You know what? Some of them should be a little more. I,
2: I think that I think that we have a ways to go both on that and the, the think the bigger harder one is that the some of the runtime uh, ex- exceptions uh, are just like what the heck are you talking yeah. about why are you telling me this nonsense so uh, I think that there right. is a lot for us to go in that space I completely agree those are our safety features for visual studio and for you know <laughs> our world and those safety features are hardly saying, you know, they're, they're hardly that little friendly robot. They're like, rant, rant," And I don't think that's, that's really what, I
0: I don't want to ever press F5 and get initialized component, not understood or not found (laughs) or whatever. What? Yeah. Why is that my problem? Yeah. That's your problem. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It, 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 I agree with you. Okay. I think there's a ways to go on that. I I think it's a space that, uh, you know, it's, it's always challenging to go back to those underpinning kind of spaces that really make a difference to people, but they're not like, you know, a, Big flashy strategic north star. We're going to put WinForms and yeah. WPF onto .dotnet uh, Core on Windows. You know, that's a big. Nor- that's a big. You can get behind that. Saying, yeah, error, mess- error messages suck. It's a little harder to get behind that as a big strategic thing, but it would make a huge difference sure. in people's lives. So, I mean, we've worked on that. Yeah. I mean, the nullable work. We made the nullable message more sensible uh, a few a couple oh, yeah. versions ago, and then the nullable reference work coming out should drop the number of times that you encounter uh, a nullable reference exception. That's the, the work that's going on right now. And there's a new prototype of, out of, about, of that. There's a new prototype out if folks want to check out the build version um, of that. You can run it against your code see if it finds any bugs, see how annoying it is. And then you can uninstall it because it's just a Vizix. So it's just an extension. You can uninstall it and then be in a safe non-prototype world again. So uh, that that's a, something people can just go do for fun and and see how they like that feature and let us know whether it helps.
1: Cool. Yeah. this this is whole battle over, I'm on the standard framework and I feel like I'm left behind and I'm scared to death to move forward because i can't i have i own a hundred apps yeah you know and if i install a new version of the framework how many of those apps are going to break like just finding out what's broken yeah takes days.
2: Yeah, and I think that there's many, many layers of that problem too, because if you have 100 apps, they're probably in various states of repair on their test suites as well as on the apps themselves if they had a test suite to start with.
1: Yeah. What are these test suites you speak of, Kathleen? (laughs)
2: Well, there's both the problem in not having them, and then if you have them, there's a tendency when you're in an emergency situation and you're trying to get something out the door, and there's a test that's unrelated to your problem that's failing, you're going to disable it, and 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 that is is yep. an unfortunate thing, but it does cause test suites to fall into disrepair as well. So uh, there's something called mm-hmm. approval test which is at approvaltest.com. I won't go into that right now, but that's one tool people have. Um, I think that the uh, Intelitest, I, I it needs some evolution, but I think it's a great direction. Now, right now, that's just an enterprise, but that's a way that you can uh, automatically put in unit tests. So there's a two different ends. Approval's test is a is a way you can insert functional. Uh, test into in tests and then the intelli mm, right. test but i think this is a huge problem and that it's one of the areas that if we can move that ball down the court then people's ability to to have to embrace the stability i mean we want we wind up not understanding our apps well and having all these layers of problems on apps that really could just be stable and get tweaked in place but we we've, we've misplaced our ability to relate to them. And I do think that testing is one of our ways to bring courage back into those stable apps. We have a tendency to be far more afraid of the 10-year-old WinForms app that's running the company that's really important than we are of the yeah. app we wrote yesterday, which is actually a much scarier app because it hasn't it hasn't withstood the test of time. It hasn't had that trial by fire that a 10-year-old app has had. But we're more afraid right. as developers of the 10-year-old app, even though it's the stable one that is rocking along and we can believe in it, we tend to not because we don't understand it anymore.
1: Well, and we and the guy who does understand it isn't there anymore. And we don't know how it's, it does break. And we don't know how it breaks, right? And, and the fr- changing the framework is a classic one yeah. for that. Especially if we talk about what happened in 4.6.1 and 4.6.2. Like, there were some unhappy people there. Yeah,
2: it, and it's, that's you know, I wasn't with Microsoft yet, but I'll still hang my head from Microsoft because obviously that's, that's a mistake when it happens. I mean, the, the goal is, yeah. but after this much, time knowing that sometimes it's not perfect for everybody, then I'm really happy that the strategic decision has been to say, let's change the way that we deploy applications in a way that allows people to embrace where they're at. And in parallel to that, we're doing some work with uh, with uh, LTS, um, long-term support, which is we're now going to be declaring okay. certain versions to have long-term support and they will right. have you'll be able to to grab those versions and have confidence of security fixes for a period into the future that you're that you you won't have if you're just grabbing the latest and greatest. So there's a couple of ways in which I think Microsoft is embracing stability, embracing these however many trillions and gazillions of lines of code that are out there in the .NET ecosystem, making companies function well, giving people jobs, that we can at the same time embrace that and make that move that experience forward at the same time We're also saying, hey, here's these great things. Hey, we want to help you with nullable reference. Hey, we want to add these other features. We're looking at all sorts of interesting new stuff, but pulling that from both ends, both saying what you've got is important and let us help you. Keep it great. At the same time, we're saying, let's give you new features, let's move things down the court. And so uh, I think it's really important that there's this balance that's coming more to the forefront, I think, with the current announcements. I think it's been there a bit, but I think Microsoft is becoming better able to talk about hey, we want to help you do what you're doing where you're doing it. So, yeah, it's, it's a great time to be there.
1: Are you seeing a time we're going to kind of provide a set of guidance for folks maintaining these enterprise apps saying, OK, you want to make them more stable? Like, I like your idea. Here are key versions that you can totally count on. I, one of the thoughts I had was, should I if, if I only get a couple of hours a month to work on a given, maintain a given app, compiling the framework into the app, making it a true executable seems like a good idea. In that sense, it's like now I'm just not f- vulnerable to framework changes and those sorts of things. This app stays the same.
2: Well, I I hate to see people do that because it blocks you from security fixes. Right. And so what I'd like, and this is where we're going with, with, with well, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're there in .NET core we just want everybody to we want more people not everybody unfortunately but more people to be able to be on .net core but in the .net core world you target a framework and it it works to find that framework now there's some complex rules around what happens and you know if that framework's not found but if you say you want to run on 2.0... and 2.1 are both on the machine you'll run on 2.0 and then if 2.0 gets a security fix where it's like 2.0.3 then it'll say oh well the 2.0 i have is 2.0.3 i'll run on that and you'll run with security fixes so i think that the this model is really good um and i i'll spill the beans on something on that would you Uh like me to do that definitely Uh uh-oh uh-oh, spill the beans here, okay? <laughs> so one of the things people have been asking us for like crazy, okay, is that we produce an executable for .NET Core, so just to remind people that don't know, currently what we allow you to do is create what we call a framework-dependent application, which is a DLL. It's a it's not an say It's a DLL that goes onto the machine, and then an app host. You say .NET space DLL name, and the app host starts up your DLL. Now the reason we need to do that is because the app host is platform-dependent. And your DLL is not. Your DLL is binary compatible across every place we run. So that's the reason that we have that. Now, to get around that, you can specify the platform. We call it the runtime identifier or the RID. You identify the platform you're targeting, and then you can put... The whole runtime inside of that, and that creates a super giant executable. Right. But it's an executable. Now it has right. to be targeted to a specific platform. It is no longer uh, binary uh, compatible across platforms. So that's what we've had available. What is going to be available? We're hoping in. We're hoping soon. I'm not going to. I'm not going to predict when. But we're hoping soon. Uh, is we're we're working hard on the experience of a. Uh, I'm going to call it a framework-dependent executable right now because we haven't named it, and it does describe what it is. So we're basically taking the app host and baking it into – we're basically taking the app host and the DLL and baking them in relation to each other. Mm. So you have a version of the app host that is baked – to your dll nice i I don't know if that's the best way to say it but it's an executable that has the name of your dll it can have an icon it can appear in processes as that and you can actually start that executable so it can double click all the things you want from an executable will be there now the app host and that therefore now your entire this entire thing this framework dependent executable it is platform dependent it is you're going to specify a rid and it's going to be specific to that rid so we have to stay at a dll to be binary compatible across our platforms right but we have we going forward we're looking forward to these two ways to deliver executables so that you can have an executable that does rely on the framework that's on the machine which means that you have a way to, to reference a framework and get its security updates. So I'm super excited that we're going to be cool. having that out. We've had lots of requests for it and lots of people were involved in making that happen. Um, I just it, it's been a fan, it was a fantastic collaborative thing across several teams, and so a lot of people get a lot of, of credit for, for putting that out there. But we're we're on the we're on the glide path on that. Uh, it should be out uh, soon. Obviously, it would go out in a point release. So you know, coming up, we would have things like 2.1.400 and 2.2. and it would be in some place in there. Uh, hopefully, I keep my fingers crossed that it will be before three. So uh, nice. that's that's a pretty exciting uh, upcoming feature.
1: Yeah, I, I like that. No, yeah, I, I think it's really powerful. So it's- I, and I, and I'm trying to balance knowing the time I've spent with enterprise devs are, around these problems, whether or not you actually have the cycles to consider core three with wind forms. You know, you know, I did that interview on Channel Nine with uh, Hunter and Beth and uh, and Mads, and one of the conversation points that I think Hunter brought up was this: Look, we're not going to be able to solve the high resolution screen problem. In WinForms, without breaking things, so we're going to make a separate library for this because you don't want to just jump across. It's going to change some stuff, and so you yeah. know, you're going to be able to experiment essentially. You make this commitment to go. Okay, I'm going to lift this old app with running on WinForms up, going to drop it into a Core Three with the new WinForms thing, and and see what you get. I'm just concerned about the compatibility, like you touching code that hasn't been touched in a long time. Like it's going to be very challenging to just have that drop in.
2: I, I do think that, that there's a, a lot of challenges around moving, moving both uh, both creating this thing that we're going to be creating and then moving, at, moving code into it. I think that um, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of double in the details on this. And as we see it come to fruition, uh, in whatever time frame we actually have a chance to work with real live, this is what it's going to look like. Bits, we're going to learn a lot about what does move easily and what doesn't move easily. I'm also excited about it because I've always been a fan, and I remain a fan of the Winforms uh, model because yeah. I believe that there is a huge amount of what we do, including something. Things as simple as I just want a real interface to test my uh, web API surface area right. and I don't want to have to use a tool for that. I just want to create a, a test front end I can play with. It, things as simple as that right. to real department apps and you know company apps that don't get used very often. There's just a boatload of places where for us to spend more than 15 minutes on a UI is not consistent with the problem we're solving. And so having a mechanism by which we can create super simple, super fast UIs I believe is important in our future. Unfortunately, right now in our space, we can't do that cross-platform yet. Um, I do hope one day we will have that. Uh, but right now, this when the the WinForms work will be specific to Windows. But at least if you have it there, you have a mechanism by which you can create super fast UIs that are you know they're also going to be fast to run. But here I'm talking about the development time. You can drag and drop and line things up and, and just get all that done really fast. And then if you want a good looking app for all of the different Windows platforms, then you can go to WPF, which is, in a, it's an amazing UI f- mechanism. It just does take a little bit more to get your job done if you're not familiar with it. So sure. and, I'm and really excited about them for new apps too.
1: The WPF designer has just never gotten to a place the WinForms designer got to. I almost wonder if we should not be making a subset designer. This is not the full power XAML, but this is a WinFormish capable thing that will generate, you know, spit out WPF you can use.
2: That would be a, that would be an interesting thing to do because it would also do what WinForms doesn't, which is provide a path for growth from a simple application to one that had the full powers of. WPF behind it. Right now, you're kind of in WinForms, and then if you want more power, you rewrite your UI. You got to make this giant jump. Yeah.
0: Yep. Sure.
2: Yeah. Now I should mention what's not going to go. The, the and the big thing that's going to be painful for people that won't go. Um, and it's it's a big, it's a big thing, which is that um the web forms a- apps, and I have huge. Soft spot for web forms developers and people working on that because there are some technologies that in my personal opinion we should leave behind and web forms is on that is on that list and I feel bad about that I feel bad about saying it but it was a. It was something that made sense when it was created and it's yeah. really tough to justify today. Forcing it forces two models on top of each other mm. that don't fit very well. And so Webforms is, is I've not heard anything about Webforms going forward. Uh, I wouldn't anticipate it going forward. So if you've got a web forms app, sad moment. Um, but I, w- I would like to say again that the full framework is is not I mean, we're not abandoning full framework to do no, core. Sure. That's not what's happening. And so you know the real
0: the real cool stuff is Blazer now, isn't it? What do you think?
2: Oh, I'm I'm still waiting to see on Blazer. I have to say that because it's uh, it, it's really interesting technology. I'm just not convinced that that the I guess. I still don't think the browser is the right place to do certain UIs, and so uh, it's interesting. And I might be proved totally wrong. I mean, remember, I'm the one that didn't think this internet thing was going to go
1: anywhere. <laughs> so, true so confessions.
2: Don't ask me for, you know, for my crystal ball has been very fuzzy at times. So, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask on that. But I am extremely excited that we're walking down the path of can we do Blazer. Yeah. But I just still feel it's an experimental thing. It's, it, you know, when we label things experimental, mm-hmm. they're experimental. And we might abandon them. And we do abandon some. Um, we have other things that i i want us to come back to and learn from like code contracts was experimental so code contracts is not supported on core because it's not the right model for core it works at an il level it isn't the right way to do it but so now we're pulling things from code contracts into the compiler so it's not even a separate experience and right now we're doing that with the big one for code contracts which was knowing where you're nullable and understanding Mm -hmm. your nullability and so by addressing that one we're kind of ticking a box it'll take a while to tick all the boxes on code contracts
0: that's what i should have done i should have put the nullability uh attribute on my get funny function (laughs) (laughs) then at least it'd return a null and you'd
1: expect it you know, Yes, yes, it yes. That that would have been
2: good.
1: Yeah, 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 <laughs> I, I yeah. I appreciate, you know, if there's a theme coming across in the show, it's this, we, Microsoft is watching what you're doing. Like, depending on how people use Blazor is what's going to ultimately happen to Blazor. But I, I hear the very much the same thing around these moves with Core 3 and the framework. What are people doing with the framework? What kind of apps are they willing to ma- move forward? What features did we need to have? Because you, you can't just automatically build everything. You got to build the things that people need.
2: Right. I th- I think there's truth in that. I think on Blazer, and when we say something experimental, it's also still open. Whether it's technically going to be as feasible as it looked up front, can we make? Can we hit the bars that we need for quality and security, and all of the bars that we would do? Can we hit those bars? Uh, there's great people working on that, and and I don't want to be pessimistic about mm. it. Um, I just want to. You know, experimental means, you know, we haven't decided if it's strategic. I think Blazor would be strategic if we could do it. We haven't decided if it's technically going to land where we need it to. Is it going to fill all the goals that we need it to? And on that, it's, you know, in order for Blazor to be right, it has to have a super good relationship with JavaScript and the and the uh, and the DOM model. So we, yeah. we have to be yeah. able to... If we just put Blazor on a machine, it's just Blazor sitting on a machine. Or right, that's not what that doesn't make sense. So if if we can't interact with other things inside the browser, and that work is going on. I mean, it's not like this is a surprise, but there's I I have not yet seen that like baked into something I believed, yes, that's completely I could see using that. And that's why it's marked as experimental. And hopefully we will see great stuff from that in the future. Um, I'm just in a little bit of wait and see. It, things are marked experimental. I stand a little bit of a wait and see on it. So sure. that that's the... Um,
0: sure. Yeah. So uh, what's in your inbox? What are you doing oh, next? Oh,
2: gosh. Uh, <laughs> getting a, getting a um, uh, expense report out right now. But yeah, no, that's... Uh, my inbox is... I don't know. We've got... Uh, We've got repo tools. That's that's big upcoming thing. Uh-huh. Uh, the repo tools is global tools uh, that are associated with the, we don't know what we're going to call them yet, but they're associated with what you download from GitHub. This is the major use case for it, is that if somebody has a, uh, a a project and it's on GitHub, whether it's a solution or a project or a set of files or a set of solutions or whatever it is on GitHub, we want the the people that are maintaining that to be able to control uh, the tools that are available. They want to be able to say in order to do this, you're going to want this tool and then have that tool installed uh, when the repo is cloned. So there's that work is going on. uh, And I'm just also catching my breath from two one. So I guess that's the, you know uh, yeah.
0: Well, it's great. Where are we going to see you next? Are we going to see you in uh, at dev intersection in December in Vegas
2: I will be at Dev Intersection, and I believe I will be at Heartland Developers Conference. And I have a slow year this year, so uh, I may not be too many other places, but I am uh, definitely looking forward to Vegas, and I'll be doing a workshop there as well as doing the uh, t- a couple of talks. So I am definitely looking forward to that, looking forward very much to Heartland, and uh, then I'm going to just take it easy and focus on some other things uh, for the rest of the year.
0: That's great. Kathleen, thank you very much for talking to us. It's always a pleasure.
2: Great fun. Thanks for having me. All right.
0: And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. And produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.